0: This is our second-to-last sermon in the Psalms. One of the things that I've noticed as we've read through a lot of the Psalms is there's this statement <clears throat> that the Lord knows we're dust. And uh, the psalmists re- repeat that, that line over and over again. And as I think about how that, how that sort of plays itself out, you know, we, we come into church, and I, I think we're on our best behavior. We try to be, which is not a bad thing, <clears throat> but we sort of try to leave behind um, the horrors of the week, right? We live in a, a beautiful world, and we also live in a world of horrors. Horrible things happen, and some of the thoughts and images and those things, and so sometimes you close your eyes to pray, and a horrible thought will just, like, you know, fly right by your mind, and, and makes you feel unworthy to even, to even be in church with the people of God, but... But this phrase, that the Lord knows we're dust, is almost a way of saying, um, God knows our frailty and our weakness. He knows our propensity at times to, um, to be given and succumb to some of those uh, horrors in the world that we live in. And he still loves us and he's still merciful. And that's sort of what our psalm is about this morning in Psalm 103. So let's read together the word of God, Psalm 103. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. A third time, third mention of that phrase, steadfast love. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field, for the wind passes over it and it's gone, and its place knows it no more. But, a fourth time here, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children So those who keep his covenant, and remember to do his commandments, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. So bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, his ministers, who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Father, now we do thank you for this encouraging word, this psalm of praise. We pray now for the illumination and the unction of the Holy Spirit, that we might be convicted and convinced of the truth of this passage, that we might be transformed by the truth. Your word is truth. Let us leave this place differently than the way we came in. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's a very popular line in our culture today, um, and you've probably heard it, maybe you've thought it, that the God of the New Testament is a God of mercy and grace, but the God of the Old Testament is a God of harshness and vengeance. Popular um, atheists, um, pop culture atheists like Richard Dawkins Um, have even made statements along this sort of line of reasoning. And here's an example from his book, The God Delusion. God is a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic racist, an infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Pretty rough. But many Christians sort of have this opinion of God as well. They wouldn't word it that way, but they they would want to be a little maybe a little more gracious and generous toward God with their words. But essentially, it's this same opinion that um, the God of at least two-thirds of the Bible, which is the Old Testament, is pretty, pretty rough. Pretty tough. Not the nicest deity around. I think the problem lies in the fact that we don't know as much about God as we think we do. And what we do know about the God of the Old Testament, it comes from secondhand information because this trope has been just repeated over and over and over and over again. That the God of the Old Testament is a vengeful sort of harsh deity. We've heard it so many times, but I think the problem comes from the fact that most people just don't read the Old Testament. In his book, The Old Testament is Dying, Brent Strawn points out that two-thirds of the Bible is largely ignored, even by Christians. And if that's the case about the Old Testament, the New Testament's not far behind because, well, the New Testament's built on the Old Testament. My personal assessment of the view of the God of the Old Testament as sort of harsh and severe is that it's just simply untrue. When I read the Old Testament, I see a God who threatens judgment but often relents because of his mercy and his compassion. So God certainly breathes out judgment to the nations. He breathes out judgment even to Israel, but often he relents of it. In other words, God declares that judgment is coming, but because of his compassion, he doesn't often destroy nations and people. When Moses received the 10 commandments on Mount Sinai, he comes back to find the children of Israel worshiping the golden calf, and in anger, he breaks the tablets of stone, And God graciously says, well, let's make another copy. And God gives Moses another copy of the Ten Commandments. And Moses says in Exodus 34, The Lord, the Lord God, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Here's this phrase again and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. I mean, right out of the gate, in the first couple of books of the Bible, God's reputation is one not of vengeance and harshness and severity, but of steadfast love, of compassion, of mercy. And this phrase that comes from Exodus 34 becomes the single most repeated description about God in the Old Testament. It is just found in book after book, in the law, in the prophets, in the Psalms, this declaration, this resounding depiction of God's character. In fact, the idea that God threatens judgment but often relents because of his mercy is the cause for Jonah's frustration. He hates the Ninevites, doesn't want to go, and when he finally goes and declares judgment is coming and and what happens to the Ninevites? They, they start to repent, and Jonah gets upset. And he's on a hillside or a hilltop one day, sulking, angry, and God says to Jonah, why are you mad? And Jonah says, I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's Jonah 4.2. This is a picture of God that is so pervasive all throughout the Old Testament that even the prophets sometimes don't like this truth about God. They don't like the fact sometimes, this prophet Jonah, that, you know, God is merciful, God is compassionate, that his steadfast love causes him to relent from judgment. God has always had a a reputation for compassion and mercy, forgiveness and love, The New Testament didn't give us that. The New Testament just unpacks that in the person and work of Jesus. Well, Psalm 103, our psalm this morning, is a psalm of praise. stark difference from last week's sermon on the imprecatory psalms. We did Psalm 35 last week. But it is a psalm that focuses on this idea of God's character, that he is a God of steadfast love, Mercy and compassion. And the first thing we see is the first verses one through five is this sort of David rejoicing in the gospel as he knew it. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name, and forget not all of his benefits. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The Hebrew word for soul is nephesh, and it, it means. It means all of us, our our entire being. And the psalm commands our entire being. When it says, bless the Lord, O my soul, it's essentially saying, my entire being, bless the Lord and praise God for all of his benefits. And there's five benefits listed here. That's very kind of David to do that. He says, and here are some of the benefits. God forgives, he heals he redeems, He crowns, He satisfies, just to name a few. So, number one, He forgives all your sins, not some of them, but all of them, past, present, and future. I was meditating this week on what it means that God forgives all our sins, like every sin, like every sin you'll ever commit. I thought about, I mean, imagine you got a speeding ticket and and you had a big fine and someone said, hey, I paid your speeding ticket, oh, and by the way, uh, I put my account um, at the courthouse so that any speeding ticket you ever get will be taken care of. Now some of you are thinking, sweet, but like, the message is not so keep on speeding, but I'm trying to convey the idea that someone has like knows you're probably gonna keep speeding. God has forgiven all our sins. It goes on to say, he heals our diseases and redeems us from the pit, verses three and four. The pit is the grave, obviously. But this promise that God heals our diseases and redeems us from the pit is essentially to say that that God is worthy of praise because whatever takes you out of here, God will reverse. Whatever disease kills you in the end, God's gonna turn it around. You know, we say people die of old age, that's not true. Uh, No one has ever died of old age. People die of heart failure, uh, respiratory disease, they die of stroke, right? These are all diseases that flooded into our world since the fall in the garden. They were not originally things that we were meant to experience But the promise of God to his faithful, and the reason why God is worthy of praise is because he heals us from those diseases. It doesn't mean one of those diseases may not kill you, but it means that what happens when the disease kills you, which is put you in the grave, God will turn that over. He redeems us, he heals us from diseases, he redeems us from the pit. The end of the story really isn't the end of the story with God. God will heal and redeem us from disease and death, And he crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. You know, earthly rulers, I I did a search this week on, like, where did crowns come from? Like, where does this, where where does this idea of, like, a crown, right? We have images that are from popular culture of, you know, a king with a very ornate crown with gems and stones. But in the ancient world, of course, rulers and emperors had a wreath, right? And it was the idea that, that, um, whether it was fertility or sort of um, prosperity was surrounding them. In fact, the Hebrew word for crown just means surround. And so those are things that earthly rulers want, but what we want is we want to be crowned with God's steadfast love and mercy. And this is the promise here. Uh, You may not be crowned with gems and rubies and gold and diamonds, but as the people of God, God surrounds us. He crowns us. With His steadfast love and mercy, it's sort of counterintuitive to maybe a lot of our experience in the world today. There's a lot of things that surround us. I mentioned a moment ago that we live in a world of horrors, and um, I've read a few books this past year on suffering and about how Christians process suffering. And I don't mean trials and tribu simply trials and tribulations, but the The horrific things that can happen to people and that sometimes often happen to the people of God. And it can feel that as you're sort of trudging through this world and this life that we're surrounded, seems like on every side at times, by horrors. Horrible things, certainly on the news. I mean, it it hits you every single day. Uh, On my phone, I have notifications from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and I don't know if if you get updates, but uh, there's like 10 children that have been killed just this past summer in the city, have been shot like under 10 years old. It gets crazy. And when you, when you get, I, I'm thinking about like, removing my store from those notifications because they're so discouraging. But when, when you live in a world where that's like the daily news feed, not to mention mass shootings and killings and the bad things that happen, we need to be reminded that for God's part, there is something happening in terms of his movement towards us in mercy and love. That to counter all of that weight of the horrors that happen in this world, God is always moving toward us with his love, with his mercy, with his compassion. David's reminding himself of it because if you have read some of the other psalms, you know that David is sort of like beset on every side with betrayal, with, you know, people who are trying to kill him, with all sorts of things that That would discourage him and cause him maybe to lose his faith and so he's reminding himself he's sort of speaking to himself saying soul bless the lord my soul i wonder if that's not if that's not something we also don't have to do which is to remind ourselves to sort of count our blessings and remind ourselves why god is worthy to be praised I don't know if you do that. Does, does anyone do that? You, when you, do you ever take, a, take time out to sort of thank God for all of the things he's done for you in the past and remind, because we're forgetful people, aren't we? Like, I don't know about you, but I, if there's a problem going on in my life, it's like God never did a good thing for me ever. And my flesh is prone to do that. I have to remind myself, no, Jordan, God is good. Like, here's all the things that God has done for you. Here are the, all the prayers he's answered. Here's the ways God has showed his steadfast love and mercy toward you because when you're in a situation, whether it's, a, it's discouraging or whether it's, a, it's, it's something that you know, you're stuck in, right? That's how trials work often. You're, you're just kind of stuck in them. There's no way to like hit the, hit the fast-forward button. You have to remind yourself that there's someone who is always for you and not against you, moving toward you with love and mercy. In other words, it's like God is saying, like whatever you're going through, you just need to know that like my heart towards you is of love and mercy and compassion and steadfast faithfulness. Like I love you. Have you ever had anyone do that to you when you were discouraged? Someone come along and tell you, you know, hey, look, you need to know you're loved. I love you. Like that's, that's the message from Psalm 103, is, is through David is us needing to be reminded and David reminding himself and us needing to remind ourselves wait a minute we serve a God of steadfast love it says he satisfies us with good so that youth is renewed like the eagles you know if serving the Lord in this life were only about a future hope. I, I think our faith would fizzle out. Right? Like if like if nothing ever good happened in this life, it would. It, we'd probably all give up because it'd just be too impossible to say, my life is a total mess. It's an utter disaster. Nothing good ever happens. But I'm but I'm going to heaven one day. I don't I don't know that that would translate into like joyful living. But David is proclaiming that like God satisfies us with good things so that it renews us, right? And God does give us good things. You can can count God's blessings in your life. If you want to be revived in your walk with the Lord, count your blessings. Sometimes in prayer, I like to write my prayers down on a moleskin and the people I'm praying for, but sometimes I'll just have a list of things. I'll have to sit there and write out things that God has done for me and just move through a prayer of thanksgiving. I don't say it like to boast or brag. I probably don't do it as much as I should, but but there are times where I just call out the things that throughout my entire life that God has done for me and in prayer move through sort of like a prayer of thanksgiving, and I cannot tell you how incredibly encouraging it is just to remind myself of the good things that God has done for me. It renews you. It sort of reinvig- reinvigorates you. It kind of gives you a, a renewed lease on life when you're reminded, oh, God is faithful. Look at all these wonderful things that God has done for me. Like the eagles. That's a confusing statement. I, sa- I mentioned as we were moving through the passage that eagles molt. It just means like old feathers fall out and new ones grow. It keeps, it keeps them... You know, it it keeps them young, it keeps them fresh, it keeps them agile, the ability to fly in the air without being bogged down because the old feathers get heavy and dirty. And so God renews us in the same way. Secondly, David celebrates that God is slow to anger and his love is immeasurable, verses six through 12. The Lord is compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now, there's a total of four times that the phrase steadfast love is used, but this is the second use of this phrase. Slow to anger. What does that mean, steadfast love? Like, how is that different from regular love? There's this word that theologians use, God's hesed. And it's repeated all throughout the Old Testament, and it means loving kindness. So God, God just doesn't love us, but he's, his love expresses itself towards us in kindness. God's hesed, his loving kindness. And this is really a stark contrast to the ancient pagan gods. There was no vocabulary like this in the ancient world for the pantheon of gods out there in Babylon, Greece, and Rome. There, was, there wasn't this idea that the gods are loving and kind. This is really like a radical concept that like an all-powerful deity is compassionate. I mean, if you know about Greek mythology and just the, the, the gods of the ancient world, they were capricious. They were given to sudden bouts of rage, sudden bouts of anger. Like, out of nowhere, they were completely unpredictable. And here is this repetition that, like, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is kind, compassionate, his loving kindness, surrounds us and you know god does have anger i want to say that i don't want to downplay god's anger as if he never gets angry He, he does get angry at times god gets angry at sin but even god's anger is different from ours we're quick to anger i don't know i started having kids really really young and I was super immature. In fact, I tell Maribel, you know, and she says, no, you weren't, and I say, yes, I was a terrible father early on, because I was so immature. I mean, we had kids so young. I was, like, I was growing up with my kids, and when the kids would make me mad, I would do this, you know, the, you know, the clenching of the teeth and like the, you know, the, the, the fisting, you know, just, you know. And I would rage, and I had to grow out of that. And I thought, why, why, why am I so prone and so quick to lose my temper? You know, as you get older, you mellow out a little bit and you realize, well, you know, that's, kids do stuff. You know, they don't wash before dinner. You know, they pour milk all over the you know, kitchen floor. They, You know, they write crayons on your wall that you just painted. That's the kind of things they do. I just couldn't handle that. I was quick to anger, quick to rage. I had a rage problem. I remember, this is early on. This is many years ago, okay. Maribel's family came to visit from Boston and there were holes in the drywall in our house. And her uncle said, uh, hey, what's all these holes? You know? And I said, I'm just, that's just sometimes how I let out my anger. <laughs> you know? I mean, I was in my early 20s. I'd get mad and I'd punch a hole in the drywall. I'm sure I learned it from somewhere, but that's not the God we serve. God is not quick to anger, he's not quick to wrath. He doesn't rage on us because we've irritated him. God's not temperamental that way, he's not capricious. God is, on the other hand, slow to anger and he overflows with loving kindness. God doesn't hold grudges. We're quick to anger. We make people pay who've wronged us. You ever heard that phrase, that saying, you know, vengeance is a, revenge is a dish best served cold. And that's, 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 that's the mindset of fallen man, right? Someone does you wrong, you get them back double. You repay people who do you wrong. And then you nurse a grudge, right? You don't let, you just don't let it die. You just, you keep it alive. You have to nurse it. But God doesn't hold grudges. He doesn't keep a short list of our sins. And when you sin, God is not saying, you know, this is the, I'm so sick of this, man. This is the same sin you committed in August of 2012, May of 97, you know, When are you going to get your act together? That just is not God. He knows that we're dust. He knows our frame, that we're frail and we're weak, and he loves us in spite of that. Verse 10, he doesn't deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And the idea is: just as the distance between the East and the West is immeasurable, now, you engineers in a room, don't give me any like precise equations. I don't, that's not the point here. The idea is that it's immeasurable, and guess what else is immeasurable? God's love. That just as the distance between East and West is immeasurable, so is God's love. It's immeasurable, it's boundless. I recently changed the theological position I had. I used to criticize people who elevated the love of God above all other attributes. You know, as, as good reformed people, one of the things we do is we know the holiness of God. And certainly in our culture in, and in many churches, the holiness of God is demoted as an attribute. It doesn't, it doesn't have its, it, the right role it should because uh, it is very much uh, an, a, a central part of God's character. Um, and so I used to uh, criticize that. It was my estimation that the attribute of holiness, in fact, was more or equal in importance to God's attribute of love. I think that was a position I took against like liberal Christians who don't like to talk about God's holiness or something, um, and often use the idea of God's love as code for tolerating any and all kinds of sins. Uh, but I believe that a careful reading of the Bible, the Old and New Testament together, will reveal that the Bible unmistakably elevates the love of God over every other attribute. You could disagree, that's I mean, fine. But that's my estimation. Reading the entire Bible together and looking at this idea of hesed which is all throughout the Old Testament, more than any other attribute, more than any other dimension of God's character, and then is picked right up in the New Testament and in the Gospels, that God is love, for God so loved the world, whoever loves is of God, that the love of God is absolutely the chief among all of his attributes. The Bible elevates God's love above every other attribute. And then third, David wants us to look at God's fatherly embrace in verses 13 through 18. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. You know, good parents know their children's sins, especially when they're young and immature, they can't hide things like selfishness and impatience or lack of wisdom right? As they get older, they're better at hiding that. But, you know, especially the little ones, you know, I mean, if there's ever, if you ever need proof that human beings are born sinners, just look at your little kids, right? I mean, they can't hide any of their sins. They're, they're all on display. And as parents, we see those things. But a good parent, a good father loves their kids anyway, don't they? They love their kids anyway. We see their shortcomings and their faults, their sins, and a good father loves their children anyway. Now, if you grew up without a father or perhaps estranged from your father, you may not have warm images of dad rooting for you being patient with you, being kind with you, sort of dad on the sideline of your sports events, cheering with you, go ahead, that's it, you can do it. I never had that, I I, I never had anyone on the sidelines. I played sports as a kid, I never had a single family member show up to any practice or any game I ever had, and as a result, I I performed poorly. I I, I did track and field, I was always the last one, I never cared, There there was never anyone cheering me on. And uh, so maybe you, didn't, you haven't had that experience either, but there is this image, in, and I think a lot of families have this, where dad is always rooting for his kids. I'm talking specifically about dads because the text focuses on God as a father. So ladies, I'm not, I'm not minimizing the role you play. But the idea of dad on the sidelines cheering you on, saying, come on, you can do it. You know, I'm here for you, I'm for you. And when you fail dad says that's all right It's all right you know we win some we lose some you know but we'll get it next time I feel like that's, that's God here this image of God God's fatherly embrace here in this passage he's always for us he's rooting for us he's cheering us on on the sidelines and sometimes he's on the field with you carrying you he's always encouraging us And that's the God that David sees here in this passage. God is for us and always filled with compassion for us. And then finally, David urges all nature to join in praise, verses 19 through 22. Um, Theologians and Bible experts recognize passages of Scripture, and they often have what is called an inclusio, which means that the text of a passage is bracketed by two very similar ideas. The beginning of this passage is a, is a, a declaration for the soul or the self to praise God, and this passage finishes up with a declaration that all of creation All of the heavenly hosts ought to praise God as well. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, verses 19 through 22. And his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers, who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works. It's it's as if David is saying, come on. Come on all you heavenly hosts, come on, praise the Lord with me. All you angels, come on, bless the Lord. Worship the Lord. Come on all you ministers, all of you who do his will, bless the Lord. All his works. All the places of his dominion, bless the Lord, O oh my soul. There's not a, there's not a lot of angelology in the Bible. We don't we don't learn a lot about the angels, but David seems to know something about the angels. Like they have a vocation in heaven in the presence of God, and part of that is to worship God. Their job in that sense is no different than ours because we're all created beings, right? So the angels, human beings and all of nature share in this singular task of praising God. The roaring of the oceans, the swaying of the trees in the wind, volcanic eruptions, storms at sea, the beautiful sound of a stream over the rocks in the middle of the forest. Like all of these things are praising the Lord. We we worked through Psalm 19 a few months back. And one of the lessons from Psalm 19 was that all of creation, the sun, the moon, the stars, and the heavenly bodies are worshiping God. And we're joining all of creation in blessing the Lord, worshiping and praising the Lord. Nature has a ministry of worship. This singular task of glorifying God. You know, there's this scene, I think a new version of the Lion King came out recently. I don't know who has seen it. Just like a show of hands who's seen it. One person, we've got one person who's seen it. I think Maribel, my wife, she saw. It. I haven't seen the new one, but the old one. I think it's in the new one also. But there's a scene where Simba is born, right? the the new future king, and there's this scene, you know, where Rafiki lifts up Simba on the rock, Pride Rock, and all of the like creatures and animals on the savanna join together to sort of celebrate. There's like rhinos and hippos and giraffes and gazelles and wildebeests and birds I mean they're all there together and it's a really neat illustration of like all of nature unified in the singular task of worshiping the king and that's what David sees here he sees us along with all other nature all of nature all of God's created beings joining together in this singular task of worshiping the king we don't do it perfectly right now, but one day we will. We're often divided with our neighbor, our world is often divided, and we're often divided with other believers and brothers and sisters, but one day that day will come when we are all perfectly united with all of the heavenly hosts in worshiping God. Because God is so good, so, wor- so worthy, so majestic, that all of the cosmos are called upon to praise him. And this psalm finishes the way it began with a call to worship. Do you worship God? Now just think about it for a moment. How do you worship God? Well, you're here this morning, but the rest of the week, how do you worship God? Not do you know things about God, but do you worship God? Do you regularly make room in your weekly schedule to worship God in prayer and song? Is God's praise on your lips? Or are, are, you, in, are you so much not in the habit of praising God that when you do get in, in, a, in a conversation with someone, you have no clue what to say? You know, the things in our heart pour out of our mouth easily. Right? Whatever it is you're passionate about, whatever hobby, you know, you're passionate about, you've likely learned everything about it, and you can share it with anyone at the drop of a dime. There's nothing wrong with that. But I imagine that if, we, if, if David's sense of worship and praise is ours, we ought easily to be able to let that sense of worship and wonder flow right out of us at the drop of a hat. I wonder if the sadness we often feel in life is not because we, are, is because we are not in a habit of this kind of routine praise and worship. I wonder if the heaviness that, that we feel in life where we're often burdened and often weighed down and discouraged is because we are not in sort of this routine of blessing and praising the Lord. It's really easy. It happens. It, it sneaks up on you. And you can find yourself absolutely discouraged and wondering how you got so anxiety-ridden, so fear-ridden, filled with anger or discouragement. It happens by forgetting God's benefits. Isaac Watts wrote a hymn based on these verses here in Psalm 103. He said, why should the wonders he hath wrought Be lost in silence and forgot. Let's not forget. Let's not keep silent. Let's bless the Lord, oh my soul, every opportunity we have. Let's pray. Father, now we do thank you and acknowledge that we need to remind ourselves of all of your benefits. It can be really easy in our, in our busy lives to have our faith as just another thing on the schedule. Maybe it's our church attendance. And when we leave out of here on Sundays, we go right back to our regular lives, and we don't give you much thought until we come back into church again on Sunday. We know from your word that you long to be in relationship and fellowship with us and you yearn to hear our words in prayer. We know from this passage that praise is not just for you, it's for us. It transforms our heart as we're reminded of your gospel promises, that you're merciful towards sinners, that your anger is not quickly uh, kindled, that your wrath is but for a moment and you often relent because you are a God of loving kindness. Help us this week as we go about our regular routine to remind ourselves, whether it's saying out loud in the car on the way to work or in the morning as we're drinking our coffee, that you're good. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Bless the Lord and forget not all of his benefits. For Lord God, you truly have delivered us and saved us through your son Jesus. We thank you in Christ's name, amen.